So I want to start actually by uh, going back to some of the things that Gina mentioned and, and actually maybe even going back to the Buddha uh, who I just spent some time with as I was stretching <laughs> back there. Um, I, uh, myself, as many of you know, went to India uh, in 1970 when I was a college student and began my meditation practice in January of 1971. And the very first night of my first retreat, uh, which is how I began, I began meditation in an intensive retreat format, the teacher said something that was very important for me and has remained the foundation of my understanding, which was when he said the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life. So even as we come together and there's a Buddha statue and we uh, respect that and respect the sense of tradition and lineage and so on, uh, the point really in our coming together is not Buddhism. It's not the Buddha, it's ourselves. And what any of us might be capable of as a human being. And so um, it's said in this tradition always that the Buddha was a human being. That he had some very human questions about life and suffering and happiness and change and that whatever he discovered, he discovered through the power of his own awareness and so can we. So when we look at a Buddha statue or an image, we're really, in a way, looking at something that is about ourselves. So within the teachings, known as the Dharma, um, since that word was uh, also used, um, the idea or the, the belief is that we each have a capacity within us for understanding, for clarity, for wisdom, for love, for compassion, and that as a capacity, as a potential, um, it is never ever destroyed, no matter what we might go through, no matter what we might yet go through. As a capacity, it's never destroyed. It may be, and usually is, as we know, you know covered over and obscured from view, hard to reach, uh, hard to trust, but as a capacity, it's there. So that when we practice meditation, it's not from a kind of desperate sense, like, ooh, you know, I can hardly imagine I deserve or am capable of wisdom or happiness or connection, or it's not the sense of, um, you know, I'm coming from this place of enormous deficit and maybe someday, unlikely, but maybe someday <laughs> I will have a moment of mindfulness or of compassion or, you know, everyone else has it, but I don't. So, you know, it's not exactly like that. And that, in fact, is one of the great challenges of the whole process is that it's coming from a different set of assumptions about ourselves. And so we run right up against a lot of old conditioning and patterns and habits and judgments all of the time. And yet that challenge clearly is a good challenge to have because uh, we have with that challenge a great opportunity 
to put our hearts into something in a very different way, to extend energy in a very different way, um, to learn how to uh, be persistent and um, really be patient at the same time. There are lots of opportunities within that. So going back to, uh, as Gina said, the word bhavana, which is in the Pali language, the language of the original Buddhist text, um, it is commonly translated as meditation. As Gina said, it literally, more literally means cultivation. So there's very much the sense of the Buddha living in an agrarian society using that image which meant a lot of things right away to a lot of the people listening. Um, the idea of cultivating the ground. We're cultivating the ground so that which we want can emerge. The fruit, the um, productivity, the beautiful quality, the connection, the caring, the love, whatever it is, might emerge. So we're cultivating the ground. And this is in contrast to what might be considered a very um, acquisitive model, where we reify a certain state, we quantify it, uh, we judge ourselves constantly because we want to grab it, we want to have it. You know, like, I had five minutes of love meditating yesterday, it should be 15 today. And if it's 15 today, it should be 45 tomorrow. And, you know, maybe that wasn't real love. Was that love? I don't think it was love. I don't, you know, so uh, it's a very different sensibility than just cultivating the ground. Instead of like grabbing and wanting in that half desperate or more than half desperate way. And um, that sense of uh, needing to have a certain experience to feel triumphant. So we can go home at the end of a Sunday and say to everybody, well, you wouldn't believe what happened to me at four o'clock. <laughs> you know, I loved myself completely or whatever it is. It, it just elicits a very different feeling. Okay, we're here to cultivate the ground. And in our daily practice, that's what we're continuing. We're just cultivating the ground so that this capacity, it is said, we all have can bear fruit, it can flourish. We're creating the conditions so that it can come alive, so that it can be much more present, much more real in our encounters, in our um, life, which is really what matters. And um, before I just go back to mindfulness for a minute, uh, since we're gonna spend today largely doing practices like loving kindness meditation, and compassion meditation. Uh, I think something I have seen, certainly in my own practice and in many, many people as I've taught this practice for so long, uh, and something that I think helps make this a better day and more fun, is the realization that the fruit you will see emerge, the differences you may seek you will find probably much more in your life than in any particular moment sitting formally or walking formally. 
It's the kind of practice most definitely that bears fruit in our lives. The way we are with ourselves when we make a mistake or we say something maybe not so skillful or artful in a conversation. The way we are with a stranger that we come upon. The way we are with um, creatures where we might have had really beforehand a sense of kind of living in a cocoon. And the way we are with those we have some difficulty with. The way we are with friends and whether we remember to thank them or not. The way that we are with whomever we have declared to be the other, either through indifference or antipathy or fear or prejudice or whatever it might be. That's where we will see the change. And of course, that's where we want to see the change. It's much more profound to see change there than to have some great experience on a Sunday afternoon that you then forget about you know, or Monday morning that makes no difference in your life. So um, just have fun in pursuing these practices. Use the sense of cultivating the ground and not, you know, every 15 minutes, but over time you will be able to really look at your life to see if it is changing things in the ways that might be making you happier, more at ease, more connected, allowing that capacity for love and wisdom and compassion to flourish. So the quality um, of loving kindness is called metta. Again, in the Pali language, M-E-T-T-A. Uh, the common translation is loving kindness. It's a little bit difficult to translation just in that the word um, is not that commonly used in casual conversation. Every once in a while somebody refutes that and says to me, oh no, it really can be used in casual conversation. You're just uh, too paranoid or something like that. Well, I want to tell you, I just spent literally nine and a half hours at a publisher's office the other day here in New York because I was doing some final edits on a book I have coming out in January. And uh, some chunk of that time was debating the use of the word loving kindness where they told me that every person in the office who'd seen the manuscript said, what's that? <laughs> or something like that. And I felt actually kind of vindicated because I thought, yes. <laughs> It's true what I say all the time. People don't know what that word is in an easy way that you think, oh yeah. Uh, nonetheless, there's no other word to use <laughs> that easily. Um, so loving kindness. It doesn't um, really mean the same thing as necessarily as love as we ordinary ordinarily use that word, which is extremely complicated. Some people actually prefer the translation of love for metta uh, because it's more profound. And it, it might suit, actually. But we 
do mean so many different things when we say love. Sometimes we really do, frankly, mean a medium of exchange. Uh, I will love you as long as, or I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake, as long as I am absolutely perfect. I will love you as long as you love me in return, as long as you say so in the way that I want, um, as long as the following 15 conditions are met. And I once used that example somewhere and someone in the room called out only 15. <laughs> so I will love you as long as the following however many conditions are met. And you know, it's so easy for us to uh, have that sense um, when we hear metta or loving kindness and it's not meant to be that, clearly. Uh, not, you know, to be scornful or whatever about that state, but it, we know it's so fragile. It's so dependent on circumstance. It's so apt to be shattered, to be broken. I mean, really, I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake. You know, how sustainable is that? How sustaining is that? How much of a resource is that for us? Not for long, usually because of the changing nature of life. And so when we talk about metta, you know, we are talking about a strength or a, a perspective on life that can sustain us, that isn't gonna vanish when we're disappointed, that isn't going to um, elude us when we really need some kindness toward ourselves, you know, when things are not going that well, when we're not getting what we want and so on. So uh, that's why I keep coming back to using loving kindness, even though it's, it's a little strange sometimes for people. Um, the literal translation of the word metta is friendship. So one way of seeing it is developing the art of friendship toward ourselves and toward others, ultimately toward all of life. Um, the essence of it really is about connection. It's feeling connected or acknowledging our connection in small ways and bigger ways as well. Connected to a bigger picture of who we are, not just the person who said that stupid thing. Connected to one another in a way that's not fanciful or sentimental or make-believe but is actually the truth of things often overlooked uh, to our great detriment and to the detriment of the world. So in many ways, loving kindness is aligned with wisdom. It's a way of, of responding to the truth that is actually there, that our lives are connected. So I think of it as responsiveness, Maybe we could call it the loving kindness response, I don't know. Uh, the loving response, the kind response, something. Uh, but it's about the way our hearts relate to a very deep knowing that our lives have something to do with one another and with, with all of life together. Uh, sometimes I like to think of um, those first three qualities, loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy. 
all as aspects of generosity. It may not be material generosity, but it's like generosity of the spirit. And it, it's a way of understanding the energy of it. We all know there are many, many ways to be seemingly generous. We might give somebody something, but really, we're just kind of waiting. You know, like, I'll give you this, because I see you have that. And maybe you'll give me that. That would be nice. Um, or I want to be thanked, and I think you're not thanking me properly, and I really resent that. Or, uh, you know, on the surface, it might look the same. You just give someone an object or something like that. But really, in one's heart, it's very different than simply giving, just like that free act of giving. Uh, and that, I think, also gives us some insight into these qualities. They're like generosity of the spirit. And so um, we want them to be consonant with that sense and not so much a medium of exchange because that would just make it different than, than the actual quality of loving kindness. So I often think of meditation practice in general um, and describe it as a kind of skills training where we are actually cultivating the ground. Uh, and getting more and more uh, familiar with certain states so that we can abide there more easily, they feel more natural to us, uh, we can reach for them in different situations, um, more traits than states actually, it's, it's different skills like concentration. If we feel that our attention generally speaking is kind of scattered, it's distracted, it's all over the place and we cultivate the skill of concentration, we find that we're much more able to like bring our energy together and not be so lost, not be so scattered, not be so fragmented all of the time. Just to kind of bring our energy together, to have much more of a sense of being uh, centered, collected, integrated, empowered, because that, for one thing, is an awful lot of energy that is usually not that available to us because it's flying all over the place. And the more we bring it together and bring it together, like we just did in that meditation, the more uh, we have a kind of stability of awareness. It's like we have a home base inside. We have some sense of refuge inside. And meditation is also skills training in mindfulness, uh, which can mean many things and is used in a lot of different ways, especially these days. Um, uses a word in a lot of, with a lot of different meanings. Uh, one sense of mindfulness is a quality of awareness where we can see what our experience is in the present moment without having that seeing, that perception so distorted by old fears, by projection into the future, by confusion, by habits. 
So we're more seeing things as they are rather than, say, if um, historically you've been afraid of a certain emotion and that very emotion arises. Our reactive stance would be to shut down or try to pretend it's not there or uh, push it away. Whereas mindfulness would have us say, okay, this is what's happening right now. If our tendency is to get subsumed, overcome, defined by the things that come up so that uh, a moment of jealousy isn't just a moment of jealousy, it's I'm such a jealous person and I will be forever, then mindfulness would have us more see it as, oh, this is something coming and going. This is a state. Um, if we tend to judge very harshly, oh my God, I'm angry, you know, I've been practicing meditation for, oh my God, it's almost 40 years and I'm still angry and you know, I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in therapy and I'm still angry, this is all bad, this is all terrible. Mindfulness would more have us say, okay, what is anger? What is this feeling? So that um, a lot of those habits of judgment and projection into the future and uh, not allowing ourselves to acknowledge what's actually present are the very habits that are challenged by mindfulness. So mindfulness means seeing what's happening in the moment, connecting to our experience in the moment without getting lost in a lot of habitual reactions about it so that we can see more clearly. Because obviously, you know, if something comes up in our experience, either internal or external, we are immediately struggling against it and trying to push it away there's not a lot of time and space to learn more deeply, ooh, what's actually happening here? And at the same time, if we get overcome by it, defined by it very quickly, there's also not a lot of time and space to learn a lot more. So we try to establish a relationship to all of our experience where we can actually learn more clearly. So that's why mindfulness is considered the basis for insight. And then the third skill is really loving kindness or compassion, uh, which is actually like a skill from this point of view. It's, a, um, it's said that loving kindness can develop, obviously in a lot of different ways, um, in terms of the meditative process, two main ways. One is just insight, it's awareness. It's actually being able to pay attention more clearly. Because when we see more clearly, we have more understanding. When we have more understanding, we have more love. We have more compassion. Um, so an example would be an insight into say, uh, the interconnected nature of things. So here's the example I, I always use. Um, so many of you have heard it many times, I'm sure, but uh, let's all reflect for a few moments on how many other beings are somehow involved in our being here together in this room right now because the overwhelming likelihood is that no one was walking down 27th Street and looked up and thought, 
I'm following those people. We are all here because of a network of interactions and connections, relationships, encounters, conversations. That's this moment in time. None of us is here as this isolated, disconnected person, in fact. Someone gave us a book or told us about their meditation experience. Maybe somebody challenged us. And we thought, ooh, I'm going to look more deeply into life. We're all here as a consequence of layers and layers and layers and layers of encounters and relationships. That is this moment in time. And that's the truth of things. It's not, as I said you know, earlier, it's not sentimental. It's not made up. That is actually how life unfolds, that all of our lives are interconnected. And so we respond to that knowing with loving kindness, which doesn't mean we like everybody. It doesn't mean we approve of everybody. It doesn't mean that we become passive or complacent. We don't maybe take very strong action to try to seek change. It doesn't mean any of that. But whatever we do has that knowledge that our lives are connected, that people can't be discarded, overlooked. Living beings are never the other, except as a construct in the mind. So the more we see clearly, the more we have loving kindness. And the other way the skill is developed, um, and that's what we're going to do here together, is by consciously, you could say, uh, stretching. We should call everything stretching. There's the 10-minute yoga stretch, and there's the mental, emotional cellular stretch that we do in meditation. So something like loving kindness practice involves effort. It's not a straining, horrible effort. It's not a presumptuous, phony effort where we're trying to force ourselves to act like we feel something we don't really feel. But it's the effort to get out of a certain rut of how we pay attention or what we pay attention to. And it's a willingness to try. So maybe the best sense um, for practice like loving kindness is we're experimenting. Okay, we're going to make some experiments here together so that we're not going to look at ourselves and at others in exactly the old ways that maybe we have for some time. So it involves willingness, often a sense of humor, uh, sometimes taking a few risks, stepping outside of our comfort zone. It's effort, but it's not horrible effort. You know that exercise, actually, we can all do it now. Just cross your arms in the way that you're used to doing that crossing, whichever tends to go on top, whichever goes on the bottom, and then reverse it. It's like, ooh. <laughs> That feels kind of creepy. It's just like, woo. 
It's a little like that. (laughs) We're just used to paying attention in certain ways. And now we're going to check out what happens when we change that. It may not feel perfectly comfortable in the beginning, but that's okay. Because the more we keep experimenting, uh, in a way, it's almost like the bolder we get and the more we feel comfortable with difference, the more interested we are and the more we learn as we willingly stretch our attention. So, for example, it is not uncommon for most people if they are looking at themselves, for example, to pretty much say at the end of the day, you have the habit of going back over your day and thinking almost in this kind of evaluation, like how did I do today? And let's just say you are the kind of person who pretty well only remembers the negative from the day, let's just say. So what you recall is, you know, when you drop that thing in the quiet room and when you um, didn't really listen to what that person said, so you responded totally in this totally off-the-wall fashion, really disconnected from their comment, and when you turn that in late, and when you, you know, and it's like the litany. So let's just say, at the end of the day, that's where your mind goes, everything you did wrong today. So much so that your whole sense of who you are and all that you will ever be collapses around one of those mistakes. So the effort of loving kindness would almost be like saying to yourself, anything else happened today? Like any good within me? Now, it's not make-believe and it's not funny because you're not, say, looking back at this really stupid thing you said at lunch at this meeting and insisting, oh, wasn't that a brilliant and witty thing? Maybe it was really stupid. And there are consequences for that. But that's not all that we are ever. So we are going beyond that kind of tunnel vision, that stuckness in what's wrong and we're willing to experiment. What about all the many beings we encounter whom we just look right through? Who form the other for whatever reason of conditioning and not even with, in this case, with hostility, but just through habit. What happens when we make the effort to include rather than exclude. What happens? So as many of you know, that's my absolutely favorite thing to say about loving kindness, both practice and the state. What happens? That's kind of the attitude. Like, what happens when I include, when I pay attention, when I don't exclude, when I don't shut down, when I don't cut off? What happens when I listen? instead of just go off on some preconceived notion of who this person is. What happens? So that's really um, the skill of loving kindness, is being willing to engage in that kind of experimenting. We do that in both sitting and walking practice through the silent repetition of certain phrases. 
The phrases are the expressions of the heart that are shifting how we're paying attention to ourselves and to others. So instead of either indifference or antipathy or judgment, we're actually wishing well. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. The phrases aren't meant to inculcate, again, you know, this phony kind of emotion, but to really help us stretch. That's the vehicle. That's the, um, the method for how we're going to stretch our attention, our awareness. Uh, we're also practicing concentration as we do that practice, so that uh, both with the breath and with the phrases, most people discover it's not like an hour and a half before their attention wanders. It's usually a few seconds. You know, if it's with the breath, certainly when I started my practice, not within a second and a half of starting, but just before I started my practice, I had the notion, oh, you know, how hard can this be? Like, what will it be, like 800 breaths, 900 breaths before my mind wanders? And to my absolute shock, it was like one or two or three and a really good run. That's just how our minds are trained, you know, so we're always going off somewhere. And it's the same with the loving kindness phrases. They're not hard phrases, you know. But it is likely not going to be 7,000 of them before your mind wanders. Maybe seven, maybe not. Maybe two. And your attention will just go somewhere else. And the skill set is really the same, whether it's the breath or the phrases. We need to gently let go without judgment and just bring our attention back. And if you have to do that again 10 seconds later, that's perfectly fine. You just gently let go, bring your attention back. Okay? So uh, why don't we take a break now? When we come back, I'll go over some possible phrases. We'll sit and we'll have time for questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.